This morning we are continuing in our series in the Gospel of Matthew that we're calling Follow Me. This morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Last week we, we finished up the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount encompasses chapters 5 through 7, so we've been in it for a while. And as we finished it out, um, it, it said that the, the crowds were astonished by his teaching. That was kind of Matthew's uh, summary of the, of the crowd's reaction. He says the crowd, they were, they were astonished at his teaching because he taught them with authority. Not like one of their scribes, not like the Pharisees, not like the rabbis that they knew. He taught with authority. Um, and this was uh, new for them. This was a brand new thing. They'd never seen this before. He was teaching them in a brand new way. But the question now is, when he comes off the mountain, who is going to acknowledge that authority? Because that's really the only authority that matters. Anyone can have authority, technically. Anyone can claim to have authority. But the authority that matters is the authority that's actually respected. And, and uh, we see this in, in our lives, right? We know that this reality, that we're always living under some kind of authority. And everyone knows that. Um, and, and so there's a trick that I use uh, in public sometimes when um, sometimes you see particularly kids uh, doing something that you know they're not supposed to be doing, maybe like teenagers or something like that. They're doing something that, that you know is wrong. They know that, you know, that that wouldn't be allowed. Um, but it can be hard to correct them, right, in, in public and to say like, hey, stop doing that. Uh, and so this trick that I use um, that you can feel free to adopt is I say, they don't want you to do that. I say, they don't want you to do that. Um, and I kind of leave that they really vague, right? Because it, it doesn't really matter, right? They, they understand that there's an authority out there. If they're at a public park or at a school or wherever they're at, there's some authority out there. And so I just say they, it's this kind of anonymous authority figure that's there um, that I'm not saying I'm the authority, it's them. It's this anonymous group that is saying, hey, they don't want you to do that. Um, and it usually works. Most of the time it works pretty well um, because everyone recognizes that there's authority out there. Uh, but the thing is, the only authority that really matters is God's authority. And we are all always under God's authority, um, just whether or not we're going to acknowledge it. We're going to get into that today and see how people react and how Jesus exercises his authority, particularly in this case is over diseases. Jesus is going to demonstrate his authority to heal. First case we're going to look at is the case of a leper in verses 1 through 4. It says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Okay, so we got to talk about leprosy a little bit here. It's been covered um, probably in other sermons that you've heard about lepers being cleansed. But uh, leprosy in scripture, when it speaks of leprosy, it kind of it refers to a wide variety of these highly contagious, uh, virulent uh, skin diseases. Um, they weren't able to identify specific strains and all that sort of thing. So really anybody that had 
these kind of skin diseases would be just called lepers and said that they are experiencing leprosy. And it might be, it looked a lot of different, took a lot of different forms, but um, often it would have little, start with little nodules that would then ulcerate um, and uh, develop a foul discharge. Um, eyebrows and other hair would fall out. Um, the vocal cords would often become ulcerated, so there would be a kind of a wheezing, raspy voice. Um, and hands and feet would always ulcerate. Sometimes they would lose, often they would lose feeling. The nerve endings would, would go away. And so in addition to the, the leprosy actually attacking uh, the body, there would also be accidents that would happen because they couldn't feel, for example, if they touched a hot stove, and so they would burn themselves or cut themselves and, and not know it. Um, and so they would lose limbs, lose appendages uh, bit by bit. Um, hands or feet would often drop off. Um, tendons would contract so that their hands were kind of claw-like. Um, and it would last for 20 to 30 years sometimes. So this was a lifetime of suffering, physical pain um, and uh and disfigurement. Um, and in addition to that physical toll, um, there would be social, so, social isolation. Because even the law of Moses told them that a leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. He shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, there are obviously good reasons for this, right? This was a public health emergency. They didn't want leprosy to spread to the entire uh, community. And so this isolation was for the protection of the community. Um, it, it, and, but in addition to these laws that were in the law of Moses, these Israelites added laws as they became settled in the promised land because a lot of these referred to specific um, living conditions in a, in a camp, in tents, right? They used to live outside of the camp. Um, but, but once they moved into towns, what is the rule then? Well, they said things like a leper person has to live outside of the city walls, couldn't live within the city walls. Um, they would say that uh, if a leper even looked into a house, the house would become unclean. So they kind of went beyond uh, just what the law of Moses said, they would kind of make it more extreme. Um, no one could greet a leper, right? There's nothing about that in, in scripture, but, um, but they added that in on there. Uh, they would say they wanted to define what distance should there be. So they said four cubits, that, it, that you had to stay four cubits away from a leper. Well, a cubit is 18 inches. So four cubits is six feet. I found that really interesting. In addition to this verse in 45, where he talks about he shall cover his upper lip. Um, if you think about if you wore a covering on your upper lip, that's essentially a face mask. <laughs> so it's interesting that these things uh, kind of connect to our situation today. Um, they also said things like that if, a, if the wind was blowing toward a person from the direction of a leper, you had to be 100 cubits away. So uh, all these different... Um, different things added onto it. And so in that culture, to see a leper come and kneel before Jesus would have sent shockwaves through the crowd, right? People would have been appalled, shocked, like what is going on? What, what is this guy doing? And how is Jesus going to react? Because a lot of rabbis 
prided themselves on keeping themselves away from lepers. Some rabbis would brag that they would throw stones at lepers to keep them away. Some rabbis would say, I'm so pure, I don't even buy food on a street if a leper is there. Um, they would make all kinds of, uh, of declarations showing how removed they were from lepers. But this leper comes and kneels before Jesus. So how is this rabbi going to react, right? Because for them, Jesus at this point is a, just a rabbi. He's a healer, right? certainly powerful, but, but he's mostly a good teacher. And so they're wondering, how is this man different? How is Jesus different from these other rabbis? And this leper comes and kneels before him. And instead of showing him away, Jesus touches him. Right? He touches him. He reaches down and touches him, which would have sent shockwaves through the crowd. People would have probably started running in the other direction, just go, oh, I'm out on this guy, right? Because they're just afraid of, they don't want to end up in that same situation. And so probably people left in that moment from the crowd. Others would have stood in shocked silence to see Jesus touching him, maybe taking a few steps back. Um, and but we notice that the leper kneels, right? He kneels before Jesus. So he recognizes Jesus's position in comparison to his own, that he has to recognize Jesus's authority, that Jesus is higher than him, above him. And he says to him, first he calls him Lord, which is another acknowledgement of Jesus's authority over him. And then he says, if you will, he acknowledges Jesus's sovereignty over all things. And he says, if you will, you can make me clean. He acknowledges Jesus' ability to do the impossible because leprosy didn't have a cure. This wasn't something where, oh, Jesus just happened to have the cure with him. No, Jesus himself was the cure and a miraculous cure at that. But think about that phrase that he says, if you will, you can. He says, if you will, you can. None of us can say that. Or nor can we say that about anybody but Jesus. We can't say, if you will, you can to anyone else other than Jesus. Right? That is only true of him in all situations. For us, the best we can say is the opposite of that. Right? We can say, hey, if I can, I will. Right? If I can get work off on Friday, I will come to the party. Right? If I can help you move on Saturday, I will help you move on Saturday. Right? That's the best we can say. Jesus is the only one who can say about anything and in all situations, if I will, I can. He's the only one who can say that. And then he does. He says, I will. And he makes the, person, the man clean. He cleanses him, heals him of his leprosy. And then he tells him not to tell anyone what happened, but to follow the law of Moses in regards to being cleansed from leprosy. He says, go show yourself to the priest. This was included in the law of Moses. And so the question is, why does he tell him not to say anything to anybody? And there's a couple reasons for that. Um, one that we point out a lot is the fact that Jesus knew what trajectory his ministry was going to take. Right? He doesn't start his ministry until he's 30 years old, and it ends at 33 by him being executed by the Roman government. And he knows that's the direction that he's headed in. He knows that once he starts, he's going he's to make the powers that be uncomfortable, and they're going to want to take him out. And so that's part of it, certainly part of it, that he like, needs to keep this a little bit um, quiet, um, in order to continue to do the ministry that he's been called to do. Uh, but he also 
wants this man to follow the law of Moses, right? He wants him to obey the law of Moses. But if we look at what the law of Moses actually says, what this man is going to do, it's clear that it will be well known. It will be public. But he wants to be known as one who follows the word of God. He wants to be known as one who instructs people to follow the word of God. He doesn't want them to have that to hold over him, that this man could go and, and not follow the law of Moses. He wants him to follow it to the T. And so let's look at what that process looked like in Leviticus 14. Um, if you want to read it in, in, in detail, you can go to Leviticus 14. Here's kind of a breakdown of that uh, process um, as I read it. So first, the, the priest examines him outside the camp. Um, then he's supposed to get two live birds. He's going to kill one over a bowl filled with water. Um, and then he's going to dip the live bird along with some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop in the, bowl, in the blood of the sacrifice bird. Um, and then he, they're going to sprinkle the blood of the dead bird on the man seven times. Uh, the priest will do that, and then the priest will pronounce him clean. Uh, and then the, he'll let the living bird go into an open field. And then he'll wash, uh, shave, and wash his clothes. So the man's supposed to, to shave all the hair on his body, wash himself, and wash his clothing as well. Um, then he's going to come into the camp, uh, so in this case, into town, uh, but live outside of his tent for a week. So he's supposed to live outside of his own, his own dwelling for a week. Um, then he is going to, uh, after that, on the eighth day, after that, shave all of his hair again, wash himself again, and wash his clothes again. Then on the eighth day, he's going to sacrifice two lambs, one for the guilt offering, one for the sin offering. Um, then he's going to put some of the blood of the guilt offering, the, the priest will put some of the blood of the guilt offering on the man's right earlobe, right thumb, and right big toe. He'll put some oil on his right earlobe. Um, and then there's also a provision for those who are poor for a cheaper offering. So um, there's, this is like quite the process, and it's very public. Right? This is not something that is going to be kept quiet. This is going to be a major thing, and the priest is going to be involved in it. Right? He's going to have to affirm that this man was healed. He's going to have to go through all these processes. They're going to have to, frankly, break open a rarely used scroll in order to find this procedure. This isn't something that would happen all the time. And so this is a quite the production that, that is going to go into place. It frankly might have been quieter if the man had just gone back to his life, just gone back to his house and, and not bothered with any of this and tried to keep it quiet. Um, but in this case, he's going to go through this whole big procedure. The priest is going to be involved. People are going to know. I mean, the word's going to spread. Hey, this guy was healed. He's going through this process. They see him living outside of his old house. Maybe his family's inside. Um, right? It's a well-known thing. And so uh, this was a, a major deal that this man was healed in this, in this way. So let's move on here to the next account. Uh, of a centurion in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. It says this, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to, appealing to him, My Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. 
But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion said to Jesus, Go, go let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So we have a centurion who comes to Jesus. A centurion was a Roman officer. He was um, part of a, a Roman legion, which would be made up of 6,000 soldiers. And a centurion was placed in command over 100 of them. So there'd be 60 centurions in a legion, and he would have 100 men under him. So he was quite important, quite powerful. Um, and in reality, a centurion ought to have no interest in Jesus, much less view him as someone worthy of calling Lord, and yet he calls him Lord here. Um, and he comes to Jesus for help because his servant is paralyzed. And Jesus agrees to come and heal the man, right? That's that's certainly a nice thing for Jesus to do, but it's also a little bit expected, right, that this man is powerful, um, that he certainly has the ability to arrest Jesus on some trumped-up charges. And, and so Jesus is saying, oh, yeah, I'll come and heal him, right? He's willing to go. And yet, we witness the centurion's humility. He demonstrates humility in saying that he's not worthy to have Jesus come into his home. Right? That, is, that shows deep humility in his case because any centurion would have seen himself as far above any Jewish man. Right? Any, anybody in the, among the Israelites, he would have seen himself as having authority over them and certainly as of a higher class than them. Even the high priest he would have seen as being himself as being above him. And yet he says he's not worthy to have Jesus come into his house. And, and so he demonstrates this unprecedented understanding of Jesus's authority. Because as a man with authority, he understood what it meant to wield authority. He had many men under his command uh, and he could give them orders, right? Both his soldiers, but also his servants. He would have had a, a home and had servants and he understood that Jesus was an authority over everything, and so he could simply speak the words, and this man would be healed. And Jesus proclaims that he has found no Israelite who demonstrated this level of faith. Right? He says, the fact that this man understands my authority, and understands the power that I have, and, and believes that it's real, he has greater faith than anybody I have found in Israel so far. And what this shows us is that faith includes an understanding of Jesus' authority. It's not something that I think we connect to faith a lot of times, but we must believe that Jesus has total control and total authority. And he must be both Savior and Lord in our lives, right? We say that a lot. We say that Jesus is, oh, he's my Savior and Lord. But most of the time we're primarily thinking about Savior. In our Christian culture, today, we primarily think of Jesus as our Savior. And that's good, that's right, but he must also be our Lord. We must also submit to him 
and, and, and see him as being in charge of our lives, as having total say over what we do, and that he has total power over everything. The lordship of Christ is often overlooked, but it's the centerpiece of everything. Right? Rebellion against God's authority was the cause of the fall. The humility of Jesus setting aside his divine rights in order to come and dwell among us and suffer and die on our behalf is what made salvation possible. And in the end, God will restore all things uh, to the kingdom that he intended for us from the beginning, and Jesus will be on his throne. Jesus also makes this declaration that in the end, the Gentiles, all the nations of the world, will come to the table to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says that they'll come from the east and from the west, that there will be people flocking to the kingdom, but that there will be Israelites who are thrown into the outer darkness. In the end, submission to Jesus is what matters, right? He says that, that it doesn't matter that the Israelites are, children, are actual descendants of Abraham. What matters is who is willing to submit to Jesus. Those who do not submit to him willingly will not be allowed into the kingdom of God. They will be banished from the kingdom. This is the reality of hell. The reality of hell is not that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. That's so often what we want to minimize it to and say, well, if you're a good person, you go to heaven. If you're a bad person, you go to hell. It is only those who submit to Jesus and receive the forgiveness that he's offered that will be allowed to dwell in his presence forever. And those who do not, who refuse to submit to him, they will not be allowed in his presence and therefore separated from all goodness. We'll look at this last section here. We've seen a leper, we've seen a centurion, now we see a mother-in-law. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So Jesus comes to Peter's house. Makes sense. He's one of his disciples and his mother-in-law is lying sick with a fever. And he, he heals her instantly Seemingly without anyone asking, right? He comes in, he sees the situation. Doesn't seem like Peter asks him. Maybe he did, but it's not recorded. Um, and he just goes and he heals her. It seems to be instantaneous, right? That he just sees the situation, heals her. And then it, as instantaneously, she rose and began to serve him, right? Her reaction to being healed is to serve Jesus. And this is instructive for us. But this is very instructive for us because we have to ask ourselves, what is our reaction to the good that Jesus has done for us? How do we react when, when God answers our prayers? What do we do in response to what Jesus has done for us? And unfortunately, many of us forget, many of us forget about God the minute that our prayers are answered. Right? We might be praying for something for a long time, might have a difficult situation, maybe someone is ill, something is going on, and, and we pray for a long time about that. And then God answers our prayer. And then what do we do after that? Often we forget about him instantly. We're just 
we're grateful, we're glad that it happened, and we just move on with our lives. And, and it's like, well, then we kind of forget about it. Our response ought to be a life of service to Christ. Right? We ought to desire to live for him because we have been healed by our master, by our creator, by our savior. That's what Peter's mother-in-law does. And then it says they brought many more people and he healed all who were sick. Um, many, many accounts of Jesus' healings include a statement like this. The author gives some specific examples and then implies that Jesus just continued to heal many more people. And that's interesting when we think about that, right? He says, gives these three examples, and then it says they continued to bring people to him, and he was casting out demons and healing all who were sick. Well, each of those people had their own stories, right? Each of those uh, people had their their own past, their own um, connection to him and, and interaction with him. So why did the author choose to highlight the accounts that we have in Scripture? Why did Matthew choose to highlight this leper and this centurion and this mother-in-law. He wants to show us something specific, right? Matthew tells us that, that he is demonstrating that Jesus fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy, right? He tells us outright in that last verse that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So he, he tells us some of his purpose there, but we can also read into some of his purpose that um, he wants to show us something about who Jesus healed, that he healed the least, the greatest, and everyone in between. If we think about these accounts, these three people, we see a lot of different things here, right? We see that there's men and women, right? The, the mother-in-law is a woman, both the centurion and the leper seem to be men, although we don't know specifically what the centurion's servant was. That might have been a woman, um, we see the most powerful and the least powerful. Right? The centurion, one of the most powerful men in the region. Uh, the leper, certainly not very powerful. Peter's mother-in-law, not very powerful. Uh, any woman in those days wouldn't have had a lot of power. The centurion would have had a lot of power. And the, the leper would have had no power. Right? He's living, he and I can't even live in the city. We see Jews and Gentiles. Right, The centurion was a Gentile. Likely his servant was as well. Um, and, and yet we see the leper and, and Peter's mother-in-law probably were Jews. We see the insider and the outcast, right? We see the, the centurion. He certainly had a solid inside place in society, although he is removed a little bit from Israelite society. We see the leper who is way outside of society, the outcast, the utter outcast. And then we see the mother-in-law who's the center of the family, right? She's in the house. She's there all the time. Like she is a centerpiece of the family, a real matriarch. Um, she is a, certainly an insider and a beloved person. We see masters and servants. We see people of all levels, all types represented in these three people. We see so many different categories mentioned right there in those three people. And then the fact that it says he continued to bring people and he continued to heal everyone. And this really shows us that Jesus came for everybody. He didn't come for specific types of people. His message of hope, his message of forgiveness and love and grace and mercy was for everyone and continues to be to this day. There is no one who is outside of God's love, outside of the reach uh, of his grace. Oh, we also see young and old. 
interesting there as well. We see young people and older people. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 3, 26 through 27. He says, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul says that we've been admitted in, not just to the kingdom of God, we're Abraham's offspring, we've been grafted into the people of God. That we are heirs according to the promise that God made to Abraham when he said that he would that his family would bless families to the ends of the earth. All the families on the earth would be blessed through Abraham. That promise is fulfilled in Jesus. We'll wrap it up with this. How should we then live? Three takeaways for today. Number one, pray for those you believe are beyond hope. Everyone would have thought that that leper was beyond hope. If he had family members who were still alive in the city, they would have long given up hope for him. Maybe they would have still come and tried to see him a little bit, but probably not. They would have probably pretended he was dead. And so the fact that, that he was not beyond hope, that Jesus was still able to heal him, means that there is no one in our lives who is beyond hope. And I know there are people that in your life you go, I just don't see any hope for them. Don't ever believe that anyone is beyond hope. Jesus is never done. And until they are dead, there is no way they are beyond hope. Number two, consider where you question Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority extends to every part of our lives, but most of us have areas of our life that we keep beyond the reach of Jesus' authority, that we keep control for ourselves. We ought to surrender that to him. And third, believe that there is no one who is beyond the reach of Jesus' love. Believe that he came for everyone, right? This is not just the idea. This is a little, I mean, you can see how this might be similar to number one, but here I don't necessarily mean people in your life that, uh, that you might believe is beyond the reach of God's love, but categories of people. We tend to take groups of people and think they're just separate. Jesus didn't come for them. We have to believe that Jesus came for everyone. Our 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world is a great example of that. So many of us think that think of Muslims and we just think of the ter- we think of terrorism and we think of Islam and we just think, well, this is something separate. They're never going to come to Christ. They're coming to Christ in massive numbers now. This is the greatest movement of Muslims for, to Jesus uh, that we're currently living in that has ever been in history. And so we should pray for them fervently and hope that that movement continues and consider how we might come alongside of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the fact that you are the great physician. That you came to heal us. That you came to save us. That you came to remove all of the barriers that we might have to you. That you came for us. That you have the ability to do more than we can ask or imagine. God, let us have that kind of faith that says, you, if you can, you will. If you, sorry, if you will, you can. Let us have that kind of faith that we believe that you can do the impossible. I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.
Lord Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread and breaking it, he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the disciples had eaten, he took the cup and blessing it, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me.